Well, a little uh, Christmas morning word association game for you. If, if I say the word humble, hi, if I say the word humble, what do you think of first? What kind of things pop into your mind? Maybe someone weak, quiet, maybe a little nerdy, right? Unassuming. If I were a betting man, I'd wager that one of the words you probably never thought of when you think of the word humble is this word, brave. Humility and bravery, they seem like polar opposites, but actually they aren't. In fact, I'd say in order to obey what the Bible says about being a Christian, you have to be both humble and brave, because Christianity is a religion of paradoxes. And I hope and I pray this morning that we'll be able to see the paradox that we're called to. So if you're not there already, Luke chapter 2, finishing up our Advent series, of course, with the birth of Jesus Christ, as you've been tracking along with us during this Advent season. Uh, The first week, we saw how one of the main characters of our story, Mary, the young, unmarried Virgin Mary, struggled to get her mind around the fact that she was carrying baby Jesus. How we, then, like Mary, are called to submit to King Jesus even when it seems impossible because, as Scripture tells us, nothing is impossible with God. In the second week, we saw the blessings of her obedience well up into worship in the Magnificat, even in the face of doubt and fear, how we worship God for His provision, His power, and His promise. And last week, our third week, we saw how Jesus, the promised Messiah, fulfills God's promise of holiness and peace. This week, hopefully, we'll come to see the climax of the Advent season. No more are we anticipating the birth of Jesus. He is here. The child is born. To remind us all, what we see in the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, is the redemptive plan of God in action. It actually starts to happen. We see the time being just right, the prophecies being fulfilled, and God's promise coming true. And as I read last night to the kids, God promised that Satan would not win. God promised that he would return for his children. And this is his promise fulfilled. And so how do we see God's hand in that? Well, first we see him sovereignly directing world events in order to once again make it absolutely clear that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the Son of God. Look again at Luke chapter 2. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the end. And so as we start this, remember a couple things. Remember, the Bible being true is actually intermingled with actual world history. You know, stuff like facts, nations, empires, rulers, these people that are mentioned in its pages, these are real people. There really was a Caesar Augustus. There really was a Quirinius. Remember that at that time in history, in the first century AD, Israel was under the control of the Roman Empire. They had limited religious freedom to do what they were going to do within the confines of being a Roman-occupied country. So in Luke chapter 2, Luke starts out on more of a historical note. 
He notes in those days, meaning around the same time as everything else we've been talking about. One author notes that this, this account does not begin with once upon a time. Guys, what do you think of when somebody starts off saying, once upon a time? Fake. Thank you very much. Yes. That's not fake. I love that. It's not fake. Once upon a time, you're telling somebody a story about things. This, he doesn't start with once upon a time. It starts with in the beginning. These guys are on fire up here. So he doesn't start telling a story Tell, starts talking about history. In those days, Caesar Octavius Augustus, I think I have a picture of him right there. There he is. He could use a little bit of a power wash. But other than that, he's, he was a real person. He was a real person in history. He's the first emperor. He ruled from 31 BC to 14 AD. He came to power in the aftermath of the murder of Julius Caesar, who was his great uncle. Therefore, there was a lot of reorganization happening in the empire at that time. So it makes sense that they would do a census. And you'd do a census mostly for taxation purposes. So you know how many people you have and you know how much money you can, you can collect from them. The main uh, confusion, however, comes in if you, if you know your Bibles and you know history and if you know maybe apologetic arguments, which you know I'm all into, this is something the, the, the uh, atheists or, or anti-Christian worldview love to pounce on because they say this didn't exist, this didn't happen, this census didn't happen, or if it did, it was much later, which they're actually right because the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that they did do a census, but that was in 6 AD, and that doesn't line up with dates. And so just saying straight up, there is some historical confusion about that, but Luke has been historically dead on the whole time, so we have not a reason to doubt him. He's probably talking about another census that was taken before the big one. It didn't have to be the big one that happened in 6 AD. But we know that census were undertaken regularly, and the exact identity of this census doesn't have anything to do with the main point of this passage, which is the birth of Jesus Christ, fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, born in Bethlehem. Like one in the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephathra, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me the one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And Joseph and Mary, in compliance with this the census, then traveled back to the place of their family origin. And I have a Christmas map for us. I don't have my pointer. But all the way up top in that orange place called Galilee, right, there's Nazareth. And they had to travel all the way down to just above Judea. So Joseph loaded up the minivan, put everybody in there and... But the DVDs, no. How did they travel? Kids, what do you think? How did they, how did they travel? Camels? Okay, if they were rich. Donkeys? I like that. Donkeys? Donkeys? An Uber? What? Oh, horses. Yeah, maybe they used horses. They could have. But that's about, a, I know it looks only about that big, but that was about 100 miles, again, that they had to travel. Probably took the better part of a week. We know, what, we'll talk later, um, we know from verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 56, that Mary returned home to Nazareth after her visit to Elizabeth, 
And so her and Joseph then set out from there together in case that you're trying to logisticize how that worked. While they were in Bethlehem, guess what? Here comes baby Jesus. It's time for the baby to be born. Mary gave birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. They laid him in a manger because there was no room at the end. There was no room at the end because everybody was in town for the census. And so if you look at the front of your bulletins, you can see what a manger is like. And somebody said it, one of you guys said it, he was born in a feeding trough where animals would then go to eat. There was no Airbnbs, there was no hotels, there was nothing left. And so we don't know exactly what this place was. Some traditions think it was a cave. Some traditions think it was just an open air stable. Some traditions think it was a house combination of, you know, animals in the house as well. We're not really sure. The point is Jesus was born, and he was born in a manger, a place where animals would eat. Very similar, to again, to the front of your bulletins there. Imagine that, moms, dads, maybe even especially moms, though. You have your newborn baby. Just happened. Sanitary conditions. You wrap him in swaddling cloths, and then you put this precious little newborn baby in a place where the pigs eat and the cows eat and the goat seat, all of that. It's not, it's not something you would do. Not exactly hospital clean and sanitary. And here's the point. The birth of Jesus teaches us that Christianity is for the humble. The birth of Jesus teaches us that Christianity is for the humble. One of the most basic parts of being a Christian is humility. Humility manifests itself in two primary ways. First, humility with ourselves, and then humility towards others. First, humility within ourselves. The essence of our rebellion against God is the opposite of humility. The essence of our rebellion against God is pride. The essence of our rebellion is that we are then gods of our own little kingdom, that we've rejected God and we've promoted ourselves to be kings of our own little sub-kingdoms. We continue to try to rule our sub-kingdoms under the banner maybe of our national motto, we got this. E pluribus got this or something, right? We got this. I can do it. I have it. I'm in control. We're Americans. We're fine at running our own lives, we think, until we're not. It's the motto of the prideful, and the first step to being a Christian is realizing that that's not true, realizing that I need to humble myself and admit that I've been sinfully exalting myself to the position of king, and that's not my spot. It's the spot for God alone. Becoming a Christian is resubmitting to God as a true king, and the only way we can approach him is through the way that he's established, through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Scripture exhorts us in James 4.10 to humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5 says, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you. He takes us from being his enemy to being his adopted child through faith, from spiritually dead to spiritually alive, from guilty to innocent, from humble to exalted. Christianity is a religion of paradoxes. There's many of them. But secondly... Then after we we have understood our place and humbled ourselves and received the dependence and the salvation that we need, we need to have humility towards each other. Why? Because God treats us in such a way and we want to treat others as we have been treated. 1 Peter 5.5, before the verse I just read, said, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
It's really nothing different than what Jesus identified as the first and second greatest commandments. Maybe I can ask my friends up front, can anybody tell me what is the first, the, not the first commandment, I'll, I'll get you wrong right off the bat. What is the greatest commandment that Jesus said? Does anybody know the greatest commandment? Yeah, Cobes. He turned water into, uh, that, was a, that was a good miracle. What is the greatest commandment? What were he told to do above anything else? Obey? Okay, close. What do you think? What do you think? Mm, you're on the right track. One more, Paisley. Do not lie. Okay, those are all good things. A for effort. The greatest commandment, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, right? That's humbling ourselves towards God, right? But then we also have to humble ourselves towards others, which is the second greatest commandment. Bonus points, follow up, anybody? Second greatest commandment? First greatest commandment is to love God with all we have, then what maybe is our second commandment? Or the great second greatest commandment? What do you think? Love Jesus, I like it. One of the Kaperi, what do you think? Don't have any other gods before me? Okay, Paisley, one more shot, come on. Follow up. Love each other other as much as you love yourself. So we have to have humility towards God, but then we have to have humility towards each other. And Jesus said, guess what? If you do those two things, you fulfill the law and the prophets. The whole Bible depends on those two things. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Christianity, folks, is for the humble. Think about this. Our model of Jesus as the humble king born in a feeding trough how can we dare be prideful with anything in our lives? Yet we do it all the time. One author said, it's not if we have pride, but where is that pride? We have pride of achievement, pride of our families, pride of status, of looks or physique, material possessions, how awesome our houses looked for Christmas or not or whatever. Right? We are nothing but sinners who have been redeemed by our King. Merry Christmas from Highlands Bible Church. <laughs> the birth of Jesus teaches us that Christianity is for the humble. And again, just because I said humble doesn't mean that's weak or worthless. That's what we see in the next section. Look at verse 8 of Luke chapter 2. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And an angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I will bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, and suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So shepherds, friends, what do shepherds watch again? Were they watching sheep? Good. Shepherds watch sheep. They make sure that the sheep are okay. They, they steer them towards nice places of grass to eat. They keep them away from other animals that might want to eat sheep, like wolves and things. And true to the previously mentioned form here of humility, right? Who does the God of creation announce that the Messiah has been born to? Lowly, humble, smelly 
shepherds in a field, watching their flocks. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appears, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. What is the usual reaction to seeing an angel? Complete and total terror, fear. So the shepherds are terrified. And what's the first thing the angel says? Fear not. And then he tells them why. Look again at verse 10. The angel said to them, fear not, for, in other words, behold, right, for because I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Because guess what? A Savior has been born, who is Christ the Lord. So angels, God's messengers, go to lowly shepherds and tell them that Jesus the Messiah has been born. But notice a few things with me regarding this announcement. What does the angel say in verse 11? Who is born? Born in this day, the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He announces him as both Savior and Lord. As if they weren't terrified enough, then the the shepherds then witness a display of heavenly glory. Multitudes. Our Greek word here is plethos, which is where we get our word plethora. So kids, when you have a plethora, a plethos of presents today, you can thank mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and everybody else for your plethos of presents, okay? There's a dollar word for you guys if you remember that, right? It means multitudes, probably thousands, a very large number, singing glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. I know I said I was only going to verse... 14, but just take a quick peek at verse 15. Hang with me. I know. Don't, I'm not going to keep going. I promise. This is the last one. Look, verse 15 says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Guys, what did, my friends up front, what did the shepherds do after the angels left? And they told them Jesus had been born. Then the angels went back to heaven. What did the shepherds do? What did, they, what did verse 15 just tell us? Did they stay there? No. They went, and where did they go? They went, and they told everybody, right? What did you guys just sing? Go tell it on the mountain. They went and told everybody that Jesus had been born. So they went from being super afraid now to action mode. We have to do what we have to do. We have to obey. It reminds me of Mary going to Elizabeth's house after her encounter with the angel Gabriel. She was terrified, but then she went. She went to visit her relative Elizabeth. I think I would still be hiding behind the nearest boulder or bunch of sheep because I would be terrified of the angels. The shepherds say, no, let's go and see this thing that happened which the Lord has made known to us. Guys, that's courage. That's courageous obedience, and so I'll say it this way. The birth of Jesus teaches us that Christianity is for the brave. I hope you see this other paradox in Christianity. We're called to be humble, but we're called to be brave. Not humble and weak, but humble and brave. The shepherds were brave. Likewise, we need to be brave and brave in two ways. Brave enough to admit that we're not our own Savior and Lord. Brave enough to admit that we don't have this. Brave enough to admit that we are sinners separated from God and we need a Savior. This is the gospel. And please, if you hear nothing else this morning, if you're here to make mom and dad happy or whatever, first of all, thank you for coming. I love that you're here. But if you hear anything today, please hear this. There's a king, and you and him are not okay. There's sin that separates us all from God. There is no arrangement that we make with our sin. 
There's no understanding that God has with you and your sin. If God exists, then he's king, and he's king of all, and there's only one way to be reconciled to the king, the way that he made right here, right now in this passage, through faith in Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus, his son, fulfilling the prophecies, demonstrating that he is the Messiah, that he is the only path to God, but also hear this, he loves you, he's created you in his image, it's the way you are, why you, the way you are, right? You're creative, you are, are, are uh, beautiful in his image, he stands with his hands stretched out, ready to redeem you from your sin, and if you have not done that yet this morning, that is the best Christmas present that you can ever get yourself. Faith in Jesus Christ. But after you do that, right, us churchgoers, us Christians, members of Highlands, right, after we do that, we, we've, we've turned from ourselves, bravely admitted that we need a Savior, we need to stay brave. Because I don't know if you guys know this or felt this at all, it's not easy being a Christian. We've got to stay brave. Being a Christian means staying brave. Brave enough to continue to follow God. Look at, look at verse 14. It says, glory to God. Remember that announcement, what they were singing about? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. How do we please God? We obey him. That takes bravery. Isaiah 66, 2 tells us that God regards him, those who fear his name and tremble at his word. He says, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. It's brave to be a Christian these days. Some of us are about to go to family gatherings where we're, we might be the only Christian, right? Where we're just waiting for that one topic to come up, right? And then, like, it's, it's on. It's going to be on after that. We try and tiptoe around that, of course. It's brave to be a Christian these days. It's brave to stand against a worldview, a culture that has kicked God out. It's brave to stand up for biblical values wherever you are. If you're here today, you are brave. Thank you for choosing to worship God on this day, the Lord's Day, in addition to everything else we have going on. It's also crazy to me that some churches cancel church on Christmas. I, I, I'm just like, wait, what now? Because it's on a Sunday and everybody wants to open presents. You guys are, I mean, we packed this place out. That's what I'm talking about. It doesn't make sense. We have to be brave to stand up to cultural squishiness. Sooner or later, as a Christian, you're going to have to be called to take a stand. You're going to have to be called to be courageous in some way or another. And the birth of Jesus Christ also teaches us that Christianity is for the brave. So let's pull the pieces together this morning. Go back to what the angel said. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angel said he's both Savior and Lord. We love the Savior part. Jesus was born to save us from our sins. Cool, I'm in. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus wants to be my Savior? Oh, that's nice. Cool. Come on in, Jesus. Have a seat in the back uh, next to career and sports and family and money and, you know, I'll sort out the priorities later. Right? Have you really thought about the Lord part of that? Lord means authority, Lord means king, Lord means we give deference and priority to him. To continue with my lame bus analogy, Jesus isn't sitting in the back of the bus, he's driving the bus. It's his bus. We get on and we follow him. 
And we put these pieces together for the big idea this morning. The humble and the brave submit to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The humble and the brave submit to Jesus as Savior and Lord. The birth of Jesus teaches us that Christianity is for the humble. We need to be humble enough to know that we need a Savior and we need to walk in humility with each other. The birth of Jesus also teaches us that Christianity is for the brave. We need more bravery in Christianity today. We do. We need more bravery. We need to know the Bible through and through. How about this New Year's resolution? Read the Bible straight through this year. Next week, I'm going to have a whole pile of Bible chronological reading plans, right? Don't just, just you're going to do it. I, I'm, this is your year. You're not going to get bogged down in Leviticus. I know. You're going to power through. It takes bravery to do that, right? We need to understand deep in our hearts then that the humble and brave submit to Jesus Christ as both Savior and Lord because Christianity is a religion of paradoxes. Think about the birth of Jesus. After Mary gave birth, maybe in the open air, surrounded by animals, she laid him in a feeding trough. Talk about humility. But yet, then soon thereafter, myriads upon myriads, thousands of angels, great multitudes of angels appear in the sky proclaiming, This baby who was born in a feeding trough is God. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We please God by submitting to Jesus not only as our Savior, but as our Lord. And the humble and the brave submit to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Father, this day, this special day that we get to be together on your day that is normally the day we set aside for Christian worship. But what a double blessing to be able to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ here together on Sunday. Thank you so much for all of the traditions that we have in our culture of Christmas and family and food and presents and cute kids up here singing their hearts out. Lord, we thank you for all of that, but let it all point back to Jesus Christ. May our days be filled with thoughts of him, would you cultivate that awareness of us, of, of him in our hearts? And Father, would you be glorified as we seek to submit to you as Savior and Lord and be both humble and brave. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.